Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 2, Chapter 24 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the Happy Isles The figs fall from the trees. They are good and sweet. And in falling the red skins of them break. A north wind am I to ripe figs. Thus, like figs, do these doctrines fall for you, my friends. Imbibe now their juice and their sweet substance. It is autumn all around, and clear sky and afternoon. Lo, what fullness is around us, and out of the midst of superabundance it is delightful to look out upon distant seas. Once did people say, God, when they looked out upon distant seas. Now, however, have I taught you to say, Superman. God is a conjecture, but I do not wish your conjecturing to reach beyond your creating will. Could ye create a God? Then I pray you be silent about all gods. But ye could well create the superman. Not perhaps ye yourselves, my brethren, but into fathers and forefathers of the superman could ye transform yourselves, and let that be your best creating. God is a conjecture, but I should like your conjecturing restricted to the conceivable. Could ye conceive a god? But let this mean will to truth unto you, that everything be transformed into the humanly conceivable, the humanly visible, the humanly sensible. Your own discernment shall ye follow out to the end. And what ye have called the world shall but be created by you, your reason, your likeness, your will, your love, shall it itself become. And verily, for your bliss, ye discerning ones. And how would ye endure life without that hope, ye discerning ones? Neither in the inconceivable could ye have been born, nor in the irrational. But that I may reveal my heart entirely unto you, my friends, if there were gods, how could I endure it to be no god? Therefore, there are no gods. Yea, I have drawn the conclusion. Now, however, doth it draw me. God is a conjecture, 
but who could drink all the bitterness of this conjecture without dying shall his faith be taken from the creating one and from the eagle his flights into eagle heights god is a thought it maketh all the straight crooked and all that standeth real what time would be gone and all the perishable would be but a lie to think this is giddiness and vertigo to human limbs and even vomiting to the stomach verily the reeling sickness do i call it to conjecture such a thing evil do i call it and misanthropic all that teaching about the one and the plenum and the unmoved and the sufficient and the imperishable all the imperishable that's but a simile and the poets lie too much but of time and of becoming shall the best similes speak a praise shall they be and a justification of all perishableness creating that is the great salvation from suffering and life's alleviation but for the creator to appear suffering itself is needed and much transformation yea much bitter dying must there be in your life ye creators thus are ye advocates and justifiers of all perishableness for the creator himself to be the newborn child he must also be willing to be the child-bearer and endure the pangs of the child-bearer verily through a hundred souls went i my way and through a hundred cradles and birth throes many a farewell have i taken i know the heart-breaking last hours but so willeth it my creating will my fate or to tell you it more candidly just such a fate willeth my will all feeling suffereth in me and is in prison but my willing ever cometh to me as mine emancipator and comforter willing emancipateth that is the true doctrine of will and emancipation so teacheth you zarathustra no longer willing and no longer valuing and no longer creating ah that that great debility may ever be far from me and also in discerning do i feel only my wills procreating and evolving delight and if there be innocence in my knowledge it is because there is will to procreation in it away from god and gods did this will allure me what would there be to create if there were gods but to man doth it ever impel me anew my fervent creative will thus impelleth it the hammer to the stone ha ye men within the stone slumbereth an image for me the image of my visions ah that it should slumber in the hardest ugliest stone now rageth my hammer ruthlessly against its prison from the stone fly the fragments what's that to me i will complete it for a shadow came unto me the stillest 
and lightest of all things once came unto me. The beauty of the Superman came unto me as a shadow. Ah, my brethren, of what account now are the gods to me? Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici While writing this, Nietzsche is supposed to have been thinking of the island of Ischia, which was ultimately destroyed by an earthquake. His teaching here is quite clear. He was among the first thinkers of Europe to overcome the pessimism which godlessness generally brings in its wake. He points to creating as the surest salvation from the suffering which is a concomitant of all higher life. Quote, what would there be to create, he asks, if there were gods? End quote. His ideal, the Superman, lends him the cheerfulness necessary to the overcoming of that despair, usually attendant upon godlessness and upon the apparent aimlessness of a world without a god. End of Part 1, Chapter 25 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 25 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Pitiful My friends, there hath arisen a satire on your friend. Behold Zarathustra, walketh he not amongst us as if amongst animals? But it is better said in this wise. The discerning one walketh amongst men as amongst animals. Man himself is to the discerning one, the animal with red cheeks. How hath that happened unto him? Is it not because he hath had to be ashamed too oft? O oh, my friends, thus speaketh the discerning one, shame, 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 that is the history of man. And on that account doth the noble one enjoin upon himself not to abash. Bashfulness doth he enjoin on himself in presence of all sufferers. Verily, I like them not, the merciful ones, whose bliss is in their pity. Too destitute are they of bashfulness. If I must be pitiful, I dislike to be called so. And if I be so, it is preferably at a distance. Preferably also do I shroud my head and flee before being recognized, and thus do I bid you do, my friends. May my destiny ever lead unafflicted ones like you across my path, and those with whom I may have hope and repast and honey in common. Verily, I have done this and that for the afflicted, but something better did I always seem to do when I had learned to enjoy myself better. Since humanity came into being, man hath enjoyed himself too little. That alone, my brethren, is our original sin. And when we learn better to enjoy ourselves, then do we unlearn best to give pain unto others, and to contrive pain. Therefore do I wash the hand that hath helped the sufferer, 
therefore do i wipe also my soul for in seeing the sufferer suffering thereof was i ashamed on account of his shame and in helping him sorely did i wound his pride great obligations do not make grateful but revengeful and when a small kindness is not forgotten it becometh a gnawing worm be shy in accepting distinguish by accepting thus do i advise those who have naught to bestow i however am a bestower willingly do i bestow as friends to friends strangers however and the poor may pluck for themselves the fruit from my tree thus doth it cause less shame beggars however one should entirely do away with verily it annoyeth one to give unto them and it annoyeth one not to give unto them and likewise sinners and bad consciences believe me my friends the sting of conscience teacheth one to sting the worst things however are the petty thoughts verily better to have done evilly than to have thought pettily to be sure ye say the delight in petty evils spareth one many a great evil deed but here one should not wish to be sparing like a boil is the evil deed it itcheth and irritateth and breaketh forth it speaketh honourably behold i am disease saith the evil deed that is its honourableness but like infection is the petty thought it creepeth and hideth and wanteth to be nowhere until the whole body is decayed and withered by the petty infection to him however who is possessed of a devil i would whisper this word in the ear better for thee to rear up thy devil even for thee there is still a path to greatness ah my brethren one knoweth a little too much about every one and many a one becometh transparent to us but still we can by no means penetrate him it is difficult to live among men because silence is so difficult and not to him who is offensive to us are we most unfair but to him who doth not concern us at all if however thou hast a suffering friend then be a resting place for his suffering like a hard bed however a camp bed thus wilt thou serve him best and if a friend doeth thee wrong then say i forgive thee what thou hast done unto me that thou hast done it unto thyself however how could i forgive that thus speaketh all great love it surpasseth even forgiveness and pity one should hold fast one's heart for when one letteth it go how quickly doth one's head run away ah where in the world have there been greater follies than with the pitiful and what in the world hath caused more suffering than the follies of the pitiful woe unto all loving ones who have not in elevation 
which is above their pity. Thus spake the devil unto me once on a time. Even God hath his hell. It is his love for man. And lately did I hear him say these words, God is dead. Of his pity for man hath God died. So be ye warned against pity. From thence there yet cometh unto men a heavy cloud. Verily, I understand weather signs, but attend also to this word. All great love is above all its pity, for it seeketh to create what is loved. Myself do I offer unto my love, and my neighbor as myself, such is the language of all creators. All creators, however, are hard. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of part two, chapter twenty-five. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part two, chapter twenty-six of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Priests And one day Zarathustra made a sign to his disciples, and spake these words unto them. Here are priests. But although they are mine enemies, pass them quietly, and with sleeping swords. Even among them there are heroes. Many of them have suffered too much. So they want to make others suffer. Bad enemies are they. Nothing is more revengeful than their meekness, and readily doth he soil himself who toucheth them. But my blood is related to theirs, and I want withal to see my blood honored in theirs. And when they had passed, a pain attacked Zarathustra, but not long had he struggled with the pain when he began to speak thus. It moveth my heart for those priests. They also go against my taste, but that is the smallest matter unto me, since I am among men. But I suffer, and have suffered with them. Prisoners are they unto me, and stigmatized ones. He whom they call Saviour put them in fetters. In fetters of false values and fatuous words. Oh! that someone would save them from their savior. On an isle they once thought they had landed when the sea tossed them about. But behold, it was a slumbering monster. False values and fatuous words. These are the worst monsters for mortals. Long slumbereth and waiteth the fate that is in them. But at last it cometh and awaketh and devoureth and engulfeth whatever hath built tabernacles upon it. Oh, just look at those tabernacles which those priests have built themselves. Churches they call their sweet-smelling caves. Oh, that falsified light, that mustified air, where the soul may not fly aloft to its height. But so enjoineth their belief. 
on your knees up the stair ye sinners verily rather would i see a shameless one than the distorted eyes of their shame and devotion who created for themselves such caves and penitent stairs was it not those who sought to conceal themselves and were ashamed under the clear sky and only when the clear sky looketh again through ruined roofs and down upon grass and red poppies on ruined walls will i again turn my heart to the seats of this god they called god that which opposed and afflicted them and verily there was much hero spirit in their worship and they knew not how to love their god otherwise than by nailing men to the cross as corpses they thought to live in black draped they their corpses even in their talk do i still feel the evil flavor of charnel houses and he who liveth nigh unto them liveth nigh unto black pools wherein the toad singeth his song with sweet gravity better songs would they have to sing for me to believe in their saviour more like saved ones would his disciples have to appear unto me naked would i like to see them for beauty alone should preach penitence but whom would that disguised affliction convince verily their saviours themselves came not from freedom and freedom's seventh heaven verily they themselves never trod the carpets of knowledge of defects did the spirit of those saviours consist but in every defect had they put their illusion their stopgap which they called god in their pity was their spirit drowned and when they swelled and overswelled with pity there always floated to the surface a great folly eagerly and with shouts drove they their flock over the footbridge as if there were but one footbridge to the future verily those shepherds also were still of the flock small spirits and spacious souls had those shepherds but my brethren what small domains have even the most spacious souls hitherto been characters of blood did they write on the way they went and their folly taught that truth is proved by blood but blood is the very worst witness to truth blood tainteth the purest teaching and turneth it into delusion and hatred of heart and when a person goeth through fire for his teaching what doth that prove it is more verily when out of one's own burning cometh one's own teaching sultry heart and cold head where these meet there ariseth the blusterer the saviour greater ones verily have there been and higher-born ones than those whom the people call saviours those rapturous blusterers and by still greater ones than any of the saviours must ye be saved my brethren if ye would find the way to freedom never yet hath there been a superman 
Naked have I seen both of them, the greatest man and the smallest man. All too similar are they still to each other. Verily, even the greatest found I all too human. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 2, Chapter 26 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 27 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virtuous With thunder and heavenly fireworks must one speak to indolent and somnolent senses. But beauty's voice speaketh gently. It appealeth only to the most awakened souls. Gently vibrated and laughed unto me to-day my buckler. It was beauty's holy laughing and thrilling. At you, ye virtuous ones, laughed my beauty to-day. And thus came its voice unto me. They want to be paid besides. Ye want to be paid besides, ye virtuous ones. Ye want reward for virtue, and heaven for earth, and eternity for your to-day. And now ye upbraid me for teaching that there is no reward-giver, nor paymaster. And verily, I do not even teach that virtue is its own reward. Ah! This is my sorrow. Into the basis of things have reward and punishment been insinuated. And now even into the basis of your souls, ye virtuous ones. But like the snout of the boar shall my word grub up the basis of your souls. A plowshare will I be called by you. All the secrets of your heart shall be brought to light. And when ye lie in the sun, grubbed up and broken, then will also your falsehood be separated from your truth. For this is your truth. Ye are too pure for the filth of the words, vengeance, punishment, recompense, retribution. Ye love your virtue as a mother loveth her child. But when did one hear of a mother wanting to be paid for her love? It is your dearest self, your virtue. The ring's thirst is in you. To reach itself again struggleth every ring, and turneth itself. And like the star that goeth out, so is every work of your virtue, ever is its light on its way and travelling. And when will it cease to be on its way? Thus is the light of your virtue still on its way, even when its work is done. Be it forgotten and dead, still its ray of light liveth and travelleth. That your virtue is yourself, and not an outward thing, a skin or a cloak, that is the truth from the basis of your souls, ye virtuous ones. But sure enough, there are those to whom virtue meaneth writhing under the lash. And ye have hearkened too much unto their crying. 
and others are there who call virtue the slothfulness of their vices and when once their hatred and jealousy relax the limbs their justice become lively and rubbeth its sleepy eyes and others are there who are drawn downwards their devils draw them but the more they sink the more ardently gloweth their eye and the longing for their god ah their crying also hath reached your ears ye virtuous ones what i am not that that is god to me and virtue and others are there who go along heavily and creakingly like carts taking stones downhill they talk much of dignity and virtue their drag they call virtue and others are there who are like eight-day clocks when wound up they tick and want people to call ticking virtue verily in those have i mine amusement wherever i find such clocks i shall wind them up with my mockery and they shall even were thereby and others are proud of their modicum of righteousness and for the sake of it do violence to all things so that the world is drowned in their unrighteousness Ugh, how ineptly cometh the word virtue out of their mouth and when they say i am just it always soundeth like i am just revenged with their virtues they want to scratch out the eyes of their enemies and they elevate themselves only that they may lower others and again there are those who sit in their swamp and speak thus from among the bulrushes virtue that is to sit quietly in the swamp we bite no one and go out of the way of him who would bite and in all matters we have the opinion that is given us and again there are those who love attitudes and think that virtue is a sort of attitude their knees continually adore and their hands are eulogies of virtue but their heart knoweth naught thereof and again there are those who regard it as virtue to say virtue is necessary but after all they believe only that policemen are necessary and many a one who cannot see men's loftiness call it virtue to see their baseness far too well thus calleth he his evil eye virtue and some want to be edified and raised up and call it virtue and others want to be cast down and likewise call it virtue and thus do almost all think that they participate in virtue and at least every one claimeth to be an authority on good and evil but zarathustra came not to say unto all those liars and fools what do ye know of virtue what could ye know of virtue but that ye my friends might become weary of the old words which ye have learned from the fools and liars that ye might become weary of the words reward retribution punishment 
righteous vengeance. That ye might become weary of saying that an action is good because it is unselfish. Ah, my friends, that your very self be in your action, as the mother is in the child. Let that be your formula of virtue. Verily, I have taken from you a hundred formulae and your virtues, favorite playthings, and now ye upbraid me as children upbraid. They played by the sea. Then came there a wave and swept their playthings into the deep, and now do they cry. But the same wave shall bring them new playthings and spread before them new speckled shells. Thus will they be comforted, and like them shall ye also, my friends, have your comforting, and new speckled shells. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 2, Chapter 27 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 28 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Rabble Life is a well of delight. But where the rabble also drink, there all fountains are poisoned. To everything cleanly am I well disposed, but I hate to see the grinning mouths and the thirst of the unclean. They cast their eye down into the fountain, and now glanceth up to me their odious smile out of the fountain. The holy water have they poisoned with their lustfulness, and when they called their filthy dreams delight, then poisoned they also the words. Indignant became the flame when they put their damp hearts to the fire. The spirit itself bubbleth and smoketh when the rabble approach the fire. Mawkish and over-mellow becometh the fruit in their hands. Unsteady, and withered at the top doth their look make the fruit-tree. And many a one who hath turned away from life hath only turned away from the rabble. He hated to share with them fountain, flame, and fruit. And many a one who hath gone into the wilderness and suffered thirst with beasts of prey disliked only to sit at the cistern with filthy camel-drivers. And many a one who hath come along as a destroyer and as a hailstorm to all cornfields wanted merely to put his foot into the jaws of the rabble and thus stop their throat. And it is not the mouthful which hath most choked me to know that life itself requireth enmity and death and torture crosses. But I asked once, and suffocated almost with my question, what, is the rabble also necessary for life? Are poisoned fountains necessary, and stinking fires and filthy dreams and maggots in the bread of life? Not my hatred, but my loathing gnawed hungrily at my life. Ah, oft-times became I weary of spirit when I found even the rabble spiritual. 
and on the rulers turned I my back, when I saw what they now call ruling, to traffic and bargain for power, with the rabble. Amongst peoples of a strange language did I dwell with stopped ears, so that the language of their trafficking might remain strange unto me, and their bargaining for power. In holding my nose I went morosely through all yesterdays and to-days, verily, badly smell all yesterdays and to-days of the scribbling rabble. Like a cripple, become deaf and blind and dumb. Thus have I lived long, that I might not live with the power rabble, the scribe rabble, and the pleasure rabble. Toilsomely did my spirit mount stairs and cautiously. Alms of delight were its refreshment. On the staff did life creep along with the blind one. What hath happened unto me? How have I freed myself from loathing? Who hath rejuvenated mine eye? How have I flown to the height where no rabble any longer sit at the wells? Did my loathing itself create for me wings and fountain-divining powers? Verily, to the loftiest height had I to fly, to find again the well of delight. Oh, I have found it, my brethren. Here, on the loftiest height, bubbleth up for me the well of delight. And there is a life at whose waters none of the rabble drink with me. Almost too violently dost thou flow for me, thou fountain of delight. And often emptiest thou the goblet again in wanting to fill it. And yet... Must I learn to approach thee more modestly? Far too violently doth my heart still flow toward thee. My heart, on which my summer burneth, My short, hot, melancholy, over-happy summer, How my summer heart longeth for thy coolness, Past the lingering distress of my spring, Past the wickedness of my snowflakes in June, summer have I become entirely and summer noontide. A summer on the loftiest height, with cold fountains and blissful stillness, oh, come, my friends, that the stillness may become more blissful. For this is our height and our home. Too high and steep do we here dwell for all uncleanly ones and their thirst. Cast but your pure eyes into the well of my delight, my friends. How could it become turbid thereby? It shall laugh back to you with its purity. On the tree of the future we build our nest. Eagles shall bring us lone ones food in their beaks. Verily, no food of which the impure could be fellow-partakers. Fire would they think they devoured and burn their mouths. Verily, no abodes do we here keep ready for the impure. An ice-cave to their bodies would our happiness be, and to their spirits. 
and as strong winds will we live above them neighbors to the eagles neighbors to the snow neighbors to the sun thus live the strong winds and like a wind will i one day blow amongst them and with my spirit take the breath from their spirit thus willeth my future verily a strong wind is zarathustra to all low places and this counsel counseleth he to his enemies and to whatever spitteth and speweth take care not to spit against the wind thus spake zarathustra end of part two chapter twenty eight recording by john van stan savannah georgia part two chapter twenty nine of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this librivox recording is in the public domain the tarantulas lo this is the tarantula's den wouldst thou see the tarantula itself here hangeth its web touch this so that it may tremble there cometh the tarantula willingly welcome tarantula black on thy back is thy triangle and symbol and i know also what is in thy soul revenge is in thy soul wherever thou bitest there ariseth black scab with revenge thy poison maketh the soul giddy thus do i speak unto you in parable ye who make the soul giddy ye preachers of equality tarantulas are ye unto me and secretly revengeful ones but i will soon bring your hiding-places to the light therefore do i laugh in your face my laughter of the height therefore do i tear at your web that your rage may lure you out of your den of lies and that your revenge may leap forth from behind your word justice because for man to be redeemed from revenge that is for me the bridge to the highest hope and a rainbow after long storms otherwise however would the tarantulas have it let there be very justice for the world to become full of the storms of our vengeance thus do they talk to one another vengeance will we use and insult against all who are not like us thus do the tarantula hearts pledge themselves and will to equality that itself shall henceforth be the name of virtue and against all that hath power will we raise an outcry ye preachers of equality the tyrant frenzy of impotence crieth thus in you for equality your most secret tyrant longings disguise themselves thus in virtue words fretted conceit and suppressed envy perhaps your father's conceit and envy in you break they forth as flame and frenzy of vengeance 
what the father hath hid cometh out in the son and oft have i found in the son the father's revealed secret inspired ones they resemble but it is not the heart that inspireth them but vengeance and when they become subtle and cold it is not spirit but envy that maketh them so their jealousy leadeth them also into thinkers paths and this is the sign of their jealousy they always go too far so that their fatigue hath at last to go to sleep on the snow in all their lamentations soundeth vengeance in all their eulogies is maleficence and being judge seemeth to them bliss but thus do i counsel you my friends distrust all in whom the impulse to punish is powerful they are people of bad race and lineage out of their countenances peer the hangman and the sleuth-hound distrust all those who talk much of their justice verily in their souls not only honey is lacking and when they call themselves the good and just forget not that for them to be pharisees nothing is lacking but power my friends i will not be mixed up and confounded with others there are those who preach my doctrine of life and are at the same time preachers of equality and tarantulas that they speak in favor of life though they sit in their den these poison spiders and withdrawn from life is because they would thereby do injury to those would they thereby do injury who have power at present for with those the preaching of death is still most at home were it otherwise then would the tarantulas teach otherwise and they themselves were formerly the best world maligners and heretic burners with these preachers of equality will i not be mixed up and confounded for thus speaketh justice unto me men are not equal and neither shall they become so what would my love to the superman if i spake otherwise on a thousand bridges and piers shall they throng to the future and always shall there be more war and inequality among them thus doth my great love make me speak inventors of figures and phantoms shall they be in their hostilities and with those figures and phantoms shall they yet fight with each other the supreme fight good and evil and rich and poor and high and low and all names of values weapons shall they be and sounding signs that life must again and again surpass itself aloft will it build itself with columns and stairs life itself into remote distances would it gaze and out toward blissful beauties therefore doth it require elevation and because it requireth elevation therefore doth it require steps 
in variance of steps and climbers. To rise striveth life, and in rising to surpass itself. And just behold, my friends, here, where the tarantula's den is, riseth aloft in ancient temple's ruins, just behold it with enlightened eyes. Verily, he who here towered aloft his thoughts in stone, knew as well as the wisest ones about the secret of life, that there is struggle and inequality, even in beauty and war for power and supremacy, that doth he here teach us in the plainest parable. How divinely do vault and arch here contrast in the struggle! How with light and shade they strive against each other, the divinely striving ones! Thus, steadfast and beautiful, let us also be enemies, my friends. Divinely will we strive against one another. Alas! There hath the tarantula bit me myself, mine old enemy. Divinely steadfast and beautiful, it hath bit me on the finger. Punishment must there be, and justice. So thinketh it. Not gratuitously shall he here sing songs in honor of enmity. Yea, it hath revenged itself. And alas! Now will it make my soul also dizzy with revenge. That I may not turn dizzy, however, bind me fast, my friends, to this pillar. Rather will I be a pillar saint than a whirl of vengeance. Verily, no cyclone or whirlwind is Zarathustra, and if he be a dancer, he is not at all a tarantula dancer. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici The tarantulas are the socialists and democrats. This discourse offers us an analysis of their mental attitude. Nietzsche refuses to be confounded with those resentful and revengeful ones who condemn society from below, and whose criticism is only suppressed envy. Quote, there are those who preach my doctrine of life, end quote. he says of the Nietzschean socialists, quote, and are at the same time preachers of equality and tarantulas. End quote. See notes on chapter forty and chapter fifty one. End of part two, chapter twenty nine. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part two, chapter thirty of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The famous wise ones. The people have ye served, and the people's superstition. Not the truth, all ye famous wise ones. And just on that account did they pay you reverence. And on that account also did they tolerate your unbelief. Because 
it was a pleasantry and a by-path for the people. Thus doth the master give free scope to his slaves, and even enjoyeth their presumptuousness. But he who is hated by the people, as the wolf by the dogs, is the free spirit, the enemy of fetters, the non-adorer, the dweller in the woods. To hunt him out of his lair, that was always called sense of right by the people. On him do they still hound their sharpest-toothed dogs. For there the truth is, where the people are. Woe, woe to the seeking ones. Thus hath it echoed through all time. Your people would ye justify in their reverence, that called ye will to truth, ye famous wise ones. And your heart hath always said to itself, From the people have I come, from thence came to me also the voice of God. Stiff-necked and artful, like the ass, have ye always been as the advocates of the people. And many a powerful one who wanted to run well with the people hath harnessed in front of his horses a donkey, a famous wise man. And now, ye famous wise ones, I would have you finally throw off entirely the skin of the lion, the skin of the beast of prey, the speckled skin, and the disheveled locks of the investigator, the searcher, and the conqueror, ha, for me to learn to believe in your conscientiousness, ye would first have to break your venerating will. Conscientious. So call I him who goeth into God-forsaken wilderness, and hath broken his venerating heart. In the yellow sands, and burnt by the sun, he doubtless peereth thirstily at the isles rich in fountains, where life reposeth under shady trees. But his thirst doth not persuade him to become like those comfortable ones. For where there are oases, there are also idols. Hungry, fierce, lonesome, God-forsaken, so doth the lion will wish itself. Free from the happiness of slaves, redeemed from deities and adorations, fearless and fear-inspiring, grand and lonesome, so is the will of the conscientious. In the wilderness have ever dwelt the conscientious, the free spirits, as lords of the wilderness. But in the cities dwell the well-foddered famous wise ones, the draft-beasts. For always do they draw, as asses, the people's carts. Not that I on that account upbraid them, but serving ones do they remain, and harnessed ones even though they glitter in golden harness. And often have they been good servants and worthy of their hire. For thus saith virtue, If thou must be a servant, seek him unto whom thy service is most useful. The spirit and virtue of thy master shall advance by thou being his servant. Thus wilt thou thyself advance with his spirit and virtue." 
and verily ye famous wise ones ye servants of the people ye yourselves have advanced with the people's spirit and virtue and the people by you to your honor do i say it but the people ye remain for me even with your virtues the people with purblind eyes the people who know not what spirit is spirit is life which itself cutteth into life by its own torture doth it increase its own knowledge did ye know that before and the spirit's happiness is this to be anointed and consecrated with tears as a sacrificial victim did ye know that before and the blindness of the blind one and his seeking and groping shall yet testify to the power of the sun into which he hath gazed did ye know that before and with mountains shall the discerning one learn to build it is a small thing for the spirit to remove mountains did ye know that before ye know only the sparks of the spirit but ye do not see the anvil which it is and the cruelty of its hammer verily ye know not the spirit's pride but still less could ye endure the spirit's humility should it ever want to speak and never yet could ye cast your spirit into a pit of snow ye are not hot enough for that thus are ye unaware also of the delight of its coldness in all respects however ye make too familiar with the spirit and out of wisdom have ye often made an almshouse and a hospital for bad poets ye are not eagles thus have ye never experienced the happiness of the alarm of the spirit and he who is not a bird should not camp above abysses ye seem to me lukewarm ones but coldly floweth all deep knowledge ice cold are the innermost wells of the spirit a refreshment to hot hands and handlers respectable do ye stand there and stiff and with straight backs ye famous wise ones no strong wind or will impelleth you have ye never seen a sail crossing the sea rounded and inflated and trembling with the violence of the wind like the sail trembling with the violence of the spirit doth my wisdom cross the sea my wild wisdom but ye servants of the people ye famous wise ones how could ye go with me thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici this refers to all those philosophers hitherto who have run in the harness of established values and have not risked their reputation with the people in pursuit of truth the philosopher however as nietzsche understood him is a man who creates new values and thus leads mankind in a new direction end of part two chapter thirty recording by john van stan savannah georgia part two chapter thirty one of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Song Tis night. Now do all gushing fountains speak louder, and my soul also is a gushing fountain. Tis night. Now only do all songs of the loving ones awake, and my soul also is the song of a loving one. Something unappeased, unappeasable, is within me. It longeth to find expression. A craving for love is within me, which speaketh itself the language of love. Light am I, ah, that I were night, but it is my lonesomeness to be begirt with light. Ah, that I were dark and nightly, how would I suck at the breasts of light? And you yourselves would I bless, ye twinkling starlets and glow-worms aloft, and would rejoice in the gifts of your light. But I live in mine own light. I drink again into myself the flames that break forth from me. I know not the happiness of the receiver, and oft have I dreamt that stealing— must be more blessed than receiving. It is my poverty that my hand never ceaseth bestowing. It is mine envy that I see waiting eyes and the brightened nights of longing. Oh, the misery of all bestowers! Oh, the darkening of my sun! Oh, the craving to crave! Oh, the violent hunger and satiety! they take from me, but do I yet touch their soul? There is a gap twixt giving and receiving, and the smallest gap hath finally to be bridged over. A hunger ariseth out of my beauty. I should like to injure those I illumine. I should like to rob those I have gifted. Thus do I hunger for wickedness." withdrawing my hand when another hand already stretcheth out to it, hesitating, like the cascade which hesitateth even in its leap, thus do I hunger for wickedness. Such revenge doth mine abundance think of, such mischief welleth out of my lonesomeness. My happiness in bestowing died in bestowing. My virtue became weary of itself by its abundance. He who ever bestoweth is in danger of losing his shame. To him who ever dispenseth, the hand and heart become callous by very dispensing. Mine eye no longer overfloweth for the shame of suppliance. My hand hath become too hard for the trembling of filled hands. Whence have gone the tears of mine eye and the down of my heart? Oh, the lonesomeness of all bestowers! Oh, the silence of all shining ones! Many suns circle in desert space. To all that is dark do they speak with their light, but to me they are silent. Oh, this is the hostility of light to the shining one! unpityingly doth it pursue its course unfair to the shining one in its innermost heart cold to the sun's 
thus traveleth every sun. Like a storm do the suns pursue their courses, that is their traveling. Their inexorable will do they follow, that is their coldness. Oh, ye only is it, ye dark nightly ones, that extract warmth from the shining ones. Oh, ye only, drink milk and refreshment from the light's utters. Ah, there is ice around me. My hand burneth with the iciness. Ah, there is thirst in me. It panteth after your thirst. Tis night. Alas, that I have to be light, and thirst for the nightly and lonesomeness. Tis night. Now doth my longing break forth in me as a fountain. For speech do I long. Tis night. Now do all gushing fountains speak louder, and my soul also is a gushing fountain. Tis night. Now do all songs of loving ones awake, and my soul also is the song of a loving one. Thus sang Zarathustra. End of Part 2, Chapter 31 Recording by John Van Stan Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 32 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dance Song One evening went Zarathustra and his disciples through the forest, and when he sought for a well, lo, he lighted upon a green meadow peacefully surrounded with trees and bushes, where maidens were dancing together. As soon as the maidens recognized Zarathustra, they ceased dancing. Zarathustra, however, approached them with friendly mien, and spake these words. Cease not your dancing, ye lovely maidens. No game-spoiler hath come to you with evil eye, no enemy of maidens. God's advocate am I with the devil. He, however, is the spirit of gravity. How could I, ye light-footed ones, be hostile to divine dances, or to maidens' feet with fine ankles? To be sure, I am a forest, and a knight of dark trees, but he who is not afraid of my darkness will find banks full of roses under my cypresses. And even the little god may he find, who is dearest to maidens, beside the well lieth he quietly with closed eyes. Verily, in broad daylight did he fall asleep, the sluggard, had he perhaps chased butterflies too much? Upbraid me not, ye beautiful dancers, when I chasten the little god somewhat. He will cry, certainly, and weep, but he is laughable even when weeping. And with tears in his eyes shall he ask you for a dance, and I myself will sing a song to his dance. A dance-song and satire on the spirit of gravity my supremest, powerfulest devil, who is said to be lord of the world. And this is the song that Zarathustra sang when Cupid and the maidens danced together. Of late did I gaze into thine eye, O life, 
and into the unfathomable did I there seem to sink. But thou pullest me out with a golden angle. Derisively didst thou laugh when I called thee unfathomable. Such is the language of all fish, saidst thou. What they do not fathom is unfathomable. But changeable am I only, and wild, and altogether a woman, and no virtuous one. Though I be called by you men the profound one, or the faithful one, the eternal one, the mysterious one, but ye men endow us always with your own virtues, alas, ye virtuous ones. Thus did she laugh, the unbelievable one. But never do I believe her and her laughter when she speaketh evil of herself. And when I talked face to face with my wild wisdom, she said to me angrily, Thou willest, thou cravest, thou lovest, on that account alone dost thou praise life. Then had I almost answered indignantly, and told the truth to the angry one, and one cannot answer more indignantly than when one telleth the truth to one's wisdom. For thus do things stand with us three. In my heart do I love only life, and verily most when I hate her. But that I am fond of wisdom, and often too fond, is because she remindeth me very strongly of life. She hath her eye, her laugh, and even her golden angle-rod. Am I responsible for it that both are so alike? And when once life asked me, who is she then this wisdom then said i eagerly ah yes wisdom one thirsteth for her and is not satisfied one looketh through veils one graspeth through nets is she beautiful what do i know but the oldest carps are still lured by her changeable is she and wayward Often have I seen her bite her lip, and pass the comb against the grain of her hair. Perhaps she is wicked and false, and altogether a woman. But when she speaketh ill of herself, just then doth she seduce most. When I had said this unto life, then laughed she maliciously and shut her eyes. Of whom dost thou speak? said she. Perhaps of me? And if thou wert right, is it proper to say that in such wise to my face? But now, pray, speak also of thy wisdom. Ah, and now hast thou again opened thine eyes, O beloved life, and into the unfathomable have I again seemed to sink. Thus sang Zarathustra, but when the dance was over and the maidens had departed, he became sad. The sun hath been long set, said he at last. The meadow is damp, and from the forest cometh coolness. An unknown presence is about me, and gazeth thoughtfully. What, thou livest still, Zarathustra? Why, wherefore, whereby, whither, where? How? Is it not folly still to live? Ah, 
my friends, the evening is it which thus interrogateth in me. Forgive me my sadness. Evening hath come on. Forgive me that evening hath come on. Thus sang Zarathustra. End of Part 2, Chapter 32 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 33 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE GRAVE SONG Yonder is the grave island, the silent isle. Yonder also are the graves of my youth. Thither will I carry an evergreen wreath of life. Resolving thus in my heart, did I sail o'er the sea. O oh, ye sights and scenes of my youth! O oh, all ye gleams of love! Ye divine fleeting gleams! How could ye perish so soon for me? I think of you to-day as my dead ones. From you, my dearest dead ones, cometh unto me a sweet savour, heart opening and melting. Verily, it convulseth and openeth the heart of the lone seafarer. Still am I the richest and most to be envied, I, the lonesome one, for I have possessed you, and ye possess me still. Tell me, to whom hath there ever fallen such rosy apples from the tree as have fallen unto me? Still am I your love's heir and heritage, blooming to your memory with many-hued, wild-growing virtues, O oh, ye dearest ones. Ah, we were made to remain nigh unto each other, ye kindly strange marvels. And not like timid birds did ye come to me and my longing. Nay, but as trusting ones to a trusting one. Yea, made for faithfulness, like me, and for fond eternities. Must I now name you by your faithlessness, ye divine glances and fleeting gleams? No other name have I yet learnt. Verily, too early did ye die for me, ye fugitives. Yet did ye not flee from me, nor did I flee from you. Innocent are we to each other in our faithlessness. To kill me did they strangle you, ye singing birds of my hopes. Yea, at you, ye dearest ones, did malice ever shoot its arrows, to hit my heart. And they hid it, because ye were always my dearest, my possession and my possessedness. On that account had ye to die young and far too early. At my most vulnerable point did they shoot the arrow, namely at you, whose skin is like down, or more like the smile that dieth at a glance. But this word will I say unto mine enemies. What is all manslaughter in comparison with what ye have done unto me? Worse evil did ye do unto me than all manslaughter, 
the irretrievable did you take from me thus do i speak unto you mine enemies slew ye not my youth's visions and dearest marvels my playmates took ye from me the blessed spirits to their memory do i deposit this wreath and this curse this curse upon you mine enemies have ye not made mine eternal short as a tone dieth away in a cold night scarcely as the twinkle of divine eyes did it come to me as a fleeting gleam thus spake once in a happy hour my purity divine shall everything be unto me then did ye haunt me with foul phantoms ah whither hath that happy hour now fled all days shall be holy unto me so spake once the wisdom of my youth verily the language of a joyous wisdom but then did ye enemies steal my nights and sold them to sleepless torture ah whither hath that joyous wisdom now fled once did i long for happy auspices then did ye lead an owl monster across my path an adverse sign ah whither did my tender longing then flee all loathing did i once vow to renounce then did ye change my nigh ones and nearest ones into ulcerations ah whither did my noblest vow then flee as a blind one did i once walk in blessed ways then did ye cast filth on the blind one's course and now is he disgusted with the old footpath and when i performed my hardest task and celebrated the triumph of my victories then did ye make those who loved me call out that i then grieved them most verily it was always your doing ye embittered to me my best honey and the diligence of my best bees to my charity have ye ever sent the most impudent beggars around my sympathy have ye ever crowded the incurably shameless thus have ye wounded the faith of my virtue and when i offered my holiest as a sacrifice immediately did your piety put its fatter gifts beside it so that my holiest suffocated in the fumes of your fat at once did i want to dance as i had never yet danced beyond all heavens did i want to dance then did ye seduce my favorite minstrel and now hath he struck up an awful melancholy air alas he tooted as a mournful horn to mine ear murderous minstrel instrument of evil most innocent instrument already did i stand prepared for the best dance then didst thou slay my rapture with thy tones only in the dance do i know how to speak the parable of the highest things and now hath my grandest parable remained unspoken 
in my limbs. Unspoken and unrealized hath my highest hope remained, and there have perished for me all the visions and consolations of my youth. How did I ever bear it? How did I survive and surmount such wounds? How did my soul rise again out of those sepulchres? Yea, something invulnerable, unburyable is with me, something that would rend rocks asunder. It is called my will. Silently doth it proceed, and unchanged throughout the years. Its course will go upon my feet, mine old will. Heart of heart is its nature, and invulnerable. Invulnerable am I only in my heel. Ever livest thou there, and art like myself, thou most patient one. Ever hast thou burst all shackles of the tomb. In thee still liveth also the unrealizedness of my youth, and as life and youth sittest thou here hopeful on the yellow ruins of graves. Yea, thou art still for me the demolisher of all graves. Hail to thee, my will, and only where there are graves are there resurrections. Thus sang Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Here Zarathustra sings about the ideals and friendships of his youth. Verses 27 to 31 undoubtedly refer to Richard Wagner. See note on chapter 65. End of part 2, chapter 33. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 2, Chapter 34 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Self-surpassing Will to truth, do ye call it, ye wisest ones, that which impelleth you and maketh you ardent? Will for the thinkableness of all being, thus do I call your will. All being would ye make thinkable, for ye doubt with good reason whether it be already thinkable. But it shall accommodate and bend itself to you. So willeth your will. Smooth shall it become and subject to the spirit as its mirror and reflection. That is your entire will, ye wisest ones, as a will to power. And even when ye speak of good and evil, and of estimates of value, ye would still create a world before which ye can bow the knee. Such is your ultimate hope and ecstasy. The ignorant, to be sure, the people, they are like a river on which a boat floateth along, and in the boat sit the estimates of value, solemn and disguised. Your will and your valuations have ye put on the river of becoming. It betrayeth unto me an old will to power, what is believed by the people as good and evil. It was ye, ye wisest ones, who put such guests in the boat, and gave them pomp and proud names, ye and your ruling will. Onward the river now carrieth your boat. It 
must carry it. A small matter if the rough wave foameth and angrily resisteth its keel. It is not the river that is your danger and the end of your good and evil, ye wisest ones, but that will itself, the will to power, the unexhausted procreating life-will. But that ye may understand my gospel of good and evil, for that purpose I will tell you my gospel of life, and of the nature of all living things. The living thing did I follow. I walked in the broadest and narrowest paths to learn its nature. With a hundred-faced mirror did I catch its glance when its mouth was shut, so that its eye might speak unto me. And its eye spake unto me. But wherever I found living things, there heard I also the language of obedience. All living things are obeying things. And this heard I secondly. Whatever cannot obey itself is commanded. Such is the nature of living things. This, however, is the third thing which I heard, namely that commanding is more difficult than obeying and not only because the commander beareth the burden of all obeyers, and because this burden readily crusheth him. An attempt and a risk seemed all commanding unto me, and whenever it commandeth, the living thing risketh itself thereby. Yea, even when it commandeth itself, then also must it atone for its commanding. Of its own law must it become the judge and avenger and victim how doth this happen so did i ask myself what persuadeth the living thing to obey and command and even be obedient in commanding hearken now unto my word ye wisest ones test it seriously whether i have crept into the heart of life itself and into the roots of its heart. Wherever I found the living thing, there found I will to power. And even in the will of the servant found I the will to be master. That to the stronger the weaker shall serve, thereto persuadeth he his will, who would be master over a still weaker one. That delight alone he is unwilling to forego and as the lesser surrendereth himself to the greater that he may have delight and power over the least of all so doth even the greatest surrender himself and staketh life for the sake of power it is the surrender of the greatest to run risk and danger and play dice for death and where there is sacrifice and service and love glances there also is the will to be master. By byways doth the weaker then slink into the fortress, and into the heart of the mightier one, and there stealeth power. And this secret spake life herself unto me. Behold, said she, I am that which must ever surpass itself. To be sure, 
ye call it will to procreation or impulse toward a goal toward the higher remoter more manifold but all that is one and the same secret rather would i succumb than disown this one thing and verily where there is succumbing and leaf falling lo there doth life sacrifice itself for power that i have to be struggle and becoming and purpose and cross-purpose ah, he who divineth my will divineth well also on what crooked paths it hath to tread whatever i create and however much i love it soon must i be adverse to it and to my love so willeth my will and even thou discerning one art only a path and footstep of my will verily my will to power walketh even on the feet of thy will to truth he certainly did not hit the truth who shot at it the formula will to existence that will doth not exist for what is not cannot will that however which is in existence how could it still strive for existence only where there is life is there also will not however will to life but so teach i thee will to power much is reckoned higher than life itself by the living one but out of the very reckoning speaketh the will to power thus did life once teach me and thereby ye wisest ones do i solve you the riddle of your hearts verily i say unto you good and evil which would be everlasting it doth not exist of its own accord must it ever surpass itself anew with your values and formulae of good and evil ye exercise power ye valuing ones and that is your secret love and the sparkling trembling and overflowing of your souls but a stronger power groweth out of your values and a new surpassing by it breaketh egg and eggshell and he who hath to be a creator in good and evil verily he hath first to be a destroyer and break values in pieces thus doth the greatest evil pertain to the greatest good that however is the creating good let us speak thereof ye wisest ones even though it be bad to be silent is worse all suppressed truths become poisonous and let everything break up which can break up by our truths many a house is still to be built thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici in this discourse we get the best exposition into the whole book of nietzsche's doctrine of the will to power i go into this question thoroughly in the note on chapter fifty seven nietzsche was not an iconoclast from choice those who hastily class him with the anarchists or the progressivists of the last century fail to understand the high esteem in which he always held both law and discipline 
in verse 41 of this most decisive discourse. He truly explains his position when he says, quote, He who hath to be a creator in good and evil, verily he hath first to be a destroyer and break values in pieces. This teaching in regard to self-control is evidence enough of his reverence for law. End of Part 2, Chapter 34 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 35 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE SUBLIME ONES Calm is the bottom of my sea. Who would guess that it hideth droll monsters? Unmoved is my depth, but it sparkleth with swimming enigmas and laughters. A sublime one saw I to-day, a solemn one, a penitent of the spirit. Oh, how my soul laughed at his ugliness! With upraised breast, and like those who draw in their breath, thus did he stand, the sublime one, and in silence. O'erhung with ugly truths, the spoil of his hunting, and rich in torn raiment, many thorns also hung on him, but I saw no rose. Not yet had he learned laughing and beauty. Gloomy did this hunter return from the forest of knowledge. From the fight with wild beasts returned he home, but even yet a wild beast gazeth out of his seriousness, an unconquered wild beast. As a tiger doth he ever stand, on the point of springing. But I do not like those strained souls. Ungracious is my taste towards all those self-engrossed ones. And ye tell me, friends, that there is to be no dispute about taste and tasting? But all life is a dispute about taste and tasting. Taste, that is, weight at the same time, and scales and weigher, and alas for every living thing that would live without dispute about weight and scales and weigher. Should he become weary of his sublimeness, this sublime one, then only will his beauty begin, and then only will I taste him and find him savoury. And only when he turneth away from himself will he o'erleap his own shadow, and verily into his sun. Far too long did he sit in the shade. The cheeks of the penitent of the spirit became pale. He almost starved on his expectations. Contempt is still in his eye, and loathing hideth in his mouth. To be sure, he now resteth, but he hath not yet taken rest in the sunshine. As the ox ought he to do, and his happiness should smell of the earth, and not of contempt for the earth. As a white ox would I like to see him, which, snorting and lowing, walketh before the plowshare, and his lowing should also loud all that is earthly. Dark is still his countenance. The shadow of his hand danceth upon it. O'ershadowed is still the sense of his eye. His deed itself is still the shadow upon him. His doing obscureth the doer. Not yet hath he overcome his deed. 
to be sure i love in him the shoulders of the ox but now do i want to see also the eye of the angel also his hero will hath he still to unlearn an exalted one shall he be and not only a sublime one the ether itself should raise him the willless one he hath subdued monsters he hath solved enigmas but he should also redeem his monsters and enigmas into heavenly children should he transform them as yet hath his knowledge not learned to smile and to be without jealousy as yet hath his gushing passion not become calm in beauty verily not in satiety shall his longing cease and disappear but in beauty gracefulness belongeth to the munificence of the magnanimous his arm across his head thus should the hero repose thus should he also surmount his repose but precisely to the hero is beauty the hardest thing of all unattainable is beauty by all ardent wills a little more a little less precisely this is much here it is the most here to stand with relaxed muscles and with unharnessed will that is the hardest for all of you ye sublime ones when power becometh gracious and ascendeth into the visible i call such condescension beauty and from no one do i want beauty so much as from thee thou powerful one let thy goodness be thy last self-conquest all evil do i accredit to thee therefore do i desire of thee the good verily i have often laughed at the weaklings who think themselves good because they have crippled paws the virtue of the pillar shalt thou strive after more beautiful doth it ever become and more graceful but internally harder and more sustaining the higher it riseth yea thou sublime one one day shalt thou also be beautiful and hold up the mirror to thine own beauty then will thy soul thrill with divine desires and there will be adoration even in thy vanity for this is the secret of the soul when the hero hath abandoned it then only approacheth it in dreams the superhero thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici these belong to a type which nietzsche did not altogether dislike but which he would fain have rendered more subtle and plastic it is the type that takes life and itself too seriously that never surmounts the camel stage mentioned in the first discourse and that is obdurately sublime and earnest to be able to smile while speaking of lofty things and not to be oppressed by them is the secret of real greatness he whose hand trembles when it lays hold of a beautiful thing has the quality of reverence without the artist's unembarrassed friendship with the beautiful hence the mistakes which have arisen in regard to confounding nietzsche with his extreme opposites the anarchists and agitators for what they dare to touch and break with the impudence and irreverence of the unappreciative he seems likewise to touch and break but with other fingers with the fingers of the loving and unembarrassed artist who is on good terms with the beautiful 
and who feels able to create it and to enhance it with his touch. The question of taste plays an important part in Nietzsche's philosophy. In verses 9 and 10 of this discourse exactly state Nietzsche's ultimate views on the subject. In The Spirit of Gravity, he actually cries, Neither a good nor a bad taste, but my taste, of which I have no longer either shame or secrecy. End of Part 2, Chapter 35 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 2, Chapter 36 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Land of Culture Too far did I fly into the future. A horror seized upon me. And when I looked around me, lo, there time was my sole contemporary. Then did I fly backwards, homewards, and always faster. Thus did I come unto you, ye present-day men, and into the land of culture. For the first time brought I an eye to see you, and good desire. Verily with longing in my heart did I come. But... How did it turn out with me? Although so alarmed, I had yet to laugh. Never did mine eye see anything so motley-colored. I laughed and laughed, while my foot still trembled and my heart as well. Here, forsooth, is the home of all the paint-pots, said I. With fifty patches painted on faces and limbs, so sat ye there to mine astonishment ye present-day men. And with fifty mirrors around you which flattered your play of colors and repeated it. Verily, ye could wear no better masks, ye present-day men, than your own faces. Who could recognize you? Written all over with the characters of the past, and these characters also penciled over with new characters. Thus have ye concealed yourselves well from all decipherers. And though one be a trier of the reins, who still believeth that ye have reins? Out of colors ye seem to be baked, and out of glued scraps. All times and peoples gaze divers colored out of your veils. All customs and beliefs speak divers colored out of your gestures. He who would strip you of veils and wrappers and paints and gestures would just have enough left to scare the crows. Verily, I myself am the scared crow that once saw you naked and without paint, and I flew away when the skeleton ogled at me. Rather would I be a day-laborer in the netherworld and among the shades of the bygone. Fatter and fuller than ye are, forsooth, the nether-worldlings. This, yea, this, is bitterness to my bowels, that I can neither endure you naked nor clothed, ye present-day men. All that is unhomelike in the future, and whatever maketh strayed birds shiver, is verily more homelike and familiar than your reality. For thus spake ye, 
real are we holy and without faith and superstition thus do ye plume yourselves alas even without plumes indeed how would ye be able to believe ye diverse colored ones ye who are pictures of all that hath ever been believed perambulating refutations are ye of belief itself and a dislocation of all thought untrustworthy ones thus do i call you ye real ones all periods prate against one another in your spirits and the dreams and pratings of all periods were even realer than your awakeness unfruitful ones are ye therefore do ye lack belief but he who had to create had always his presaging dreams and astral premonitions and believed in believing half-open doors are ye at which grave-diggers wait and this is your reality everything deserveth to perish alas how ye stand there before me ye unfruitful ones how lean your ribs and many of you surely have had knowledge thereof many a one hath said there hath surely a god filched something from me secretly whilst i slept verily enough to make a girl for himself therefrom amazing is the poverty of my ribs thus hath spoken many a present-day man yea ye are laughable unto me ye present-day men and especially when ye marvel at yourselves and woe unto me if i could not laugh at your marvelling and had to swallow all that is repugnant in your platters as it is however i will make lighter of you since i have to carry what is heavy and what matter if beetles and maybugs also alight on my load verily it shall not on that account become heavier to me and not from you ye present-day men shall my great weariness arise ah whither shall i now ascend with my longing from all mountains do i look out for fatherlands and motherlands but a home have i found nowhere unsettled am i in all cities and decamping at all gates alien to me and a mockery are the present-day men to whom of late my heart impelled me and exiled am i from fatherlands and motherlands thus do i love only my children's land the undiscovered in the remotest sea for it do i bid my sails search and search unto my children will i make amends for being the child of my fathers and unto all the future for this present day thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici this is a poetical epitome of some of the scathing criticism of scholars which appears in the first of the thoughts out of season the polemical pamphlet written in eighteen seventy three against david strauss and his school he reproaches his former colleagues with being sterile and shows them that their sterility is the result of their not believing in anything quote, he who had to create 
had always his presaging dreams and astral premonitions, and believed in believing. End quote. See note on chapter 77. In the last two verses he reveals the nature of his altruism. How far it differs from that of Christianity we have already read in the discourse Neighbor Love. But here he tells us definitely the nature of his love to mankind. He explains why he was compelled to assail the Christian values of pity and excessive love of the neighbor, not only because they are slave values and therefore tend to promote degeneration, see note B, but because he could only love his children's land, the undiscovered land in a remote sea, because he would fain retrieve the errors of his fathers in his children. End of Part 2, Chapter 36 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 37 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Immaculate Perception When yester-eve the moon arose, then did I fancy it about to bear a sun. So broad and teeming did it lie on the horizon. But it was a liar with its pregnancy. And sooner will I believe in the man in the moon than in the woman. To be sure, Little of a man is he also, that timid night-reveller. Verily, with a bad conscience doth he stalk over the roofs, for he is covetous and jealous, the monk in the moon, covetous of the earth and all the joys of lovers. Nay, I like him not, that tomcat on the roofs, hateful unto me or all that slink around half-closed windows. Piously and silently doth he stalk along on the star-carpets. But I like no light-treading human feet, on which not even a spur jingleth. Every honest one's step speaketh. The cat, however, stealeth along over the ground. Lo, cat-like doth the moon come along, and dishonestly. This parable speak I unto you, sentimental dissemblers, unto you, the pure discerners. You do I call covetous ones. Also ye love the earth and the earthly. I have divined you well. But shame is in your love, and a bad conscience. Ye are like the moon. To despise the earthly hath your spirit been persuaded, but not your bowels. These, however, are the strongest in you. And now is your spirit ashamed to be at the service of your bowels, and goeth by ways and lying ways to escape its own shame. That would be the highest thing for me, so saith your lying spirit unto itself, to gaze upon life without desire, and not like the dog with hanging out tongue, to be happy in gazing, the dead will, free from the grip and greed of selfishness, cold and ashy gray all over, but with intoxicated moon eyes. That would be the dearest thing to me. Thus doth the seduced one seduce himself. To love the earth as the moon loveth it, 
and with the eye only to feel its beauty. And this do I call immaculate perception of all things, to want nothing else from them but to be allowed to lie before them as a mirror with a hundred facets. Oh, ye sentimental dissemblers, ye covetous ones! Ye lack innocence in your desire, and now do ye defame desiring on that account? Verily, not as creators, as procreators, or as jubilators do ye love the earth. Where is innocence? Where there is will to procreation? And he who seeketh to create beyond himself hath for me the purest will. Where is beauty? where i must will with my whole will where i will love and perish that an image may not remain merely an image loving and perishing these have rhymed from eternity will to love that is to be ready also for death thus do i speak unto you cowards but now doth your emasculated ogling profess to be contemplation, and that which can be examined with cowardly eyes is to be christened beautiful, oh, ye violators of noble names! But it shall be your curse, ye immaculate ones, ye pure discerners, that ye shall never bring forth, even though ye lie broad and teeming on the horizon." Verily, ye fill your mouth with noble words, and we are to believe that your heart overfloweth, ye cozeners. But my words are poor, contemptible, stammering words. Gladly do I pick up what falleth from the table at your repasts. Yet still can I say therewith the truth to dissemblers. Yea, my fish-bones, shells, and prickly leaves shall tickle the noses of dissemblers. Bad air is always about you and your repasts. Your lascivious thoughts, your lies and secrets are indeed in the air. Dare only to believe in yourselves, in yourselves, and in your inward parts. He who doth not believe in himself always lieth. A god's mask have ye hung in front of you, ye pure ones. Into a god's mask hath your execrable, coiling snake crawled. Verily ye deceive, ye contemplative ones. Even Zarathustra was once the dupe of your godlike exterior. He did not divine the serpent's coil with which it was stuffed. A god's soul... I once thought I saw playing in your games, ye pure discerners. No better arts did I once dream of than your arts. Serpents, filth, and evil odor, the distance concealed from me, and that a lizard's craft prowled thereabouts lasciviously. But I came nigh unto you, then came to me the day, and now cometh it to you. At an end is the moon's love affair. See there, surprised and pale doth it stand, 
before the rosy dawn for already she cometh the glowing one her love to the earth cometh innocence and creative desire is all solar love see there how she cometh impatiently over the sea do ye not feel the thirst and the hot breath of her love at the sea would she suck and drink its depths to her height now riseth the desire of the sea with its thousand breasts kissed and sucked would it be by the thirst of the sun vapor would it become and height and path of light and light itself verily like the sun do i love life and all deep seas and this meaneth to me knowledge all that is deep shall ascend to my height thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici an important feature of nietzsche's interpretation of life is disclosed in this discourse as buckle suggests in his quote, influence of women on the progress of knowledge end quote, the scientific spirit of the investigator is both helped and supplemented by the latter's emotions and personality and the divorce of all emotionalism and individual temperament from science is a fatal step towards sterility zarathustra abjures all those who would fain turn an impersonal eye upon nature and contemplate her phenomena with that pure objectivity to which the scientific idealists of today would so much like to attain he accuses such idealists of hypocrisy and guile he says they lack innocence in their desires and therefore slander all desiring end of part two chapter thirty seven recording by john van stan savannah georgia part two chapter thirty eight of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this sleepervox recording is in the public domain scholars when i lay asleep then did a sheep eat at the ivy wreath on my head it ate and said thereby zarathustra is no longer a scholar it said this and went away clumsily and proudly a child told it to me i like to lie here where the children play beside the ruined wall among thistles and red poppies a scholar am i still to the children and also to the thistles and red poppies innocent are they even in their wickedness but to the sheep i am no longer a scholar so willeth my lot blessings upon it for this is the truth i have departed from the house of the scholars and the door have i also slammed behind me too long did my soul sit hungry at their table not like them have i got the knack of investigating as the knack of nut-cracking freedom do i love and the air over fresh soil rather would i sleep on oxkins than on their honors and dignities i am too hot and scorched with mine own thought often is it ready to take away my breath 
then have i to go into the open air and away from all dusty rooms but they sit cool in the cool shade they want in everything to be merely spectators and they avoid sitting where the sun burneth on the steps like those who stand in the street and gape at the passers-by thus do they also wait and gape at the thoughts which others have thought should one lay hold of them then do they raise a dust like flour-sacks and involuntary but who would divine that their dust came from corn and from the yellow delight of the summer fields when they give themselves out as wise then do their petty sayings and truths chill me in their wisdom there is often an odor as if it came from the swamp and verily i have even heard the frog croak in it clever are they they have dexterous fingers what doth my simplicity pretend to beside their multiplicity all threading and knitting and weaving do their fingers understand thus do they make the hose of the spirit good clockworks are they only be careful to wind them up properly then do they indicate the hour without mistake and make a modest noise thereby like millstones do they work and like pestles throw only seed corn unto them they know well how to grind corn small and make white dust out of it they keep a sharp eye on one another and do not trust each other the best ingenious in little artifices they wait for those whose knowledge walketh on lame feet like spiders do they wait i saw them always prepare their poison with precaution and always did they put glass gloves on their fingers in doing so they also know how to play with false dice and so eagerly did i find them playing that they perspired thereby we are alien to each other and their virtues are even more repugnant to my taste than their falsehoods and false dice and when i lived with them then did i live above them therefore did they take a dislike to me they want to hear nothing of any one walking above their heads and so they put wood and earth and rubbish betwixt me and their heads thus did they deafen the sound of my tread and least have i hitherto been heard by the most learned all mankind's faults and weaknesses did they put betwixt themselves and me they call it false ceiling in their houses but nevertheless i walk with my thoughts above their heads and even should i walk on mine own errors still would i be above them and their heads for men are not equal so speaketh justice and what i will they may not will thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici this is a record of nietzsche's final breach with his former colleagues the scholars of germany already after the publication of the birth of tragedy numbers of german philologists and professional philosophers had denounced him 
as one who had strayed too far from their flock, and his lectures at the University of Bale were deserted in consequence. But it was not until 1879, when he finally severed all connection with university work, that he may be said to have attained to the freedom and independence which stamp this discourse. End of Part 2, Chapter 38 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.